Turret. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. It may well be one of the greatest betrayals that Americans have ever experienced. It began back, well, in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, with a fellow by the name of John Dewey, and also his cohort, Horace Mann. These guys, members of the Humanist Association, decided that what really needed to happen in America was to co-opt our education that was primarily being taken care of in our homes and decide to turn it into what was called public education. Well, through that, their intent, and bear in mind the word intent, their intent was actually to change American culture, American thinking, and even our trust in God. They wanted to do it all. And they saw that the very best engine to accomplish that was to convert American education from the home that had to do with our hearts to public schools. Well, all went well for a period of time until their agenda began to take hold, and part of it began to take hold through the gradual indoctrination of public school teachers in our universities and colleges. The net result of it all is that not only have we been betrayed with regard to our public education in our schools, our public schools, but that betrayal entered and has taken over our universities. The very place where you are paying big bucks to send your kids, trusting them to the supposed intellectual guidance and education from their instructors, their professors, but what they're getting is something radically different. Our guest today on Viewpoint says that our universities are filled with brutal minds. These brutal minds are not, he's not talking about our kids, he's talking about those who you and I have entrusted those kids to for a so-called education. He says they're distributed across campuses as faculty and bureaucrats, and the worst of the lot goes by the name of student affairs. Back in 1972, he says the neo-Marxist Herbert Marcuse called for a long march through the institutions. By this, he meant an incremental seizure of the institutions of free societies in service to an authoritarian ideology. A place where people are forced to live within the lie. And he says the story is ongoing right now. Well, joining us today on Viewpoint, Stanley Ridgely, Ph.D., Ph.D., friends, but from now on he is Stan. His book, Brutal Minds, The Dark World of Left-Wing Brainwashing in Our Universities. Stan, it's so good to have you on the program. Well, I say, Chuck, it's great to be here. Um, It's an important message, and I'm delighted to be talking with you about it, and I'm delighted to be able to address your audience. Well, the interesting thing is that human beings are prone to manipulation, Anybody that doesn't realize that and cannot acknowledge that uh, perhaps is blind in one mind and refuses to see out of the other. We are very capable of being manipulated and uh, uh, 
Richard Dawkins, and you quote him in your book, in his book, Viruses of the Mind, he says, can anyone doubt that human minds are ripe for malignant infection? Well, that's uh, quite a statement coming from an atheist, a profound atheist, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that really stands the test of truth for all of us, doesn't it? I I think it does. I think that um, you make a very good point uh, by citing Dawkins and, and lifting that quote out, I think that young people are especially vulnerable to, to manipulation. Um, given that their lack of experience, they are callow, they are searching, many of them are searching. Um, some of them who are not as morally grounded um, uh, it, it ha- are particularly susceptible to the uh, siren call. You mentioned manipulation. I think we can test out manipulation on, uh, on our own by simply looking at, the, at flattery. All of us are subject <laughs> to, to flattery. You're kidding I mean, me. Who doesn't? I mean, even if you know you're being flattered, you know it, it, it feels good. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I love. Oh, I love how you said that. I love the, your words, how you laid them out on the page. That kind of thing. I mean, uh, and and so that that kind of flattery it, it really goes uh, double for students who are when they're put through the ideological grinder, um, they are made to feel so loved, more loved than they ever have in their in their lives. They are accepted for who they are. Regardless, you know, there's no conditional, it's unconditional love. Uh, you know, cults uh, do this all the time. Cults are very good at flattering people and making them feel um, uh, accepted. Uh, they're, uh, they call this love bombing. I know that the Unification Church, the, the, the Mooney sect, has mm. uses this, and they are very well, um, uh, well uh, practiced. Well, there's nothing wrong with love, and there's nothing wrong with uh, acknowledging the good thing that's in other people and encouraging them, but it goes beyond that to the intent to manipulate, and that's where we get in trouble. And by implication, you have actually already, because of the nature of your book, you've actually already accused our universities of being cults. Well, I actually have, and I I think that uh, the only, the two major entities in our country that utilize cult tactics, uh, the tactic of brainwashing, or the more formal name for it, thought reform, mm-hmm. uh, are cults, American cults and American universities, primarily student affairs and what is called the co-curriculum. I mean, it is endemic to the, to the enterprise of teaching students, or uh, when I say teaching students, I'm referring to not the faculty, I'm referring to the, to the bureaucrats who are running a parallel or a paracurriculum called the co-curriculum of workshops and uh, institutes and uh, caucuses, those sorts of things they require students to go to, Uh, it's those folks who are engaging in the type of uh, love bombing that I refer to. I wasn't trying to criticize us or criticizing the idea of love, but when it's used to to put you off guard so that you are receptive to a particular message, all right. Well, let me give you let me give you a hands-on experience. Sure. Uh, I indicated to you earlier that I spent nine years as a public school teacher in California, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, from 1967 to 1975. Well, beginning in the early 1970s, we began to receive a mandate coming down from on high the California Teachers Association and the Education Bureau up there in Sacramento. And here's what it was. You are going to attend a weekend seminar, Mm -hmm. and you're going to do this for a series of weekends. And you're going to go over there to Palos Verdes, California. You know, everybody wants to go to Palos Verdes, upper end Mm -hmm. area, uh, right Mm -hmm. there on the ocean. 
Who could resist yeah. that? And so you're going to go there, and we're going to have an encounter experience. It was called the Encounter Movement. And yeah. here's what it consisted of. It consisted of retraining your speech. No longer were we permitted to speak in terms of facts or in terms of uh, a truth. What we had to do is convert our language so that we could only talk in terms of feelings. I feel, I feel, mm-hmm. I feel. Yeah. Well, that was the beginning, I believe, of the radical indoctrination. Uh, not only that pervaded not only through our educational system, but it made its way through the churches of America as well, even the most fundamentalist churches. This is an invasion like anything we've ever seen. We'll be Once right back. time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint, friends. Viewpoint determines destiny. There's no question about it. And I'm not talking about this program in and of itself. I'm talking about your viewpoint. Our viewpoints concerning education, our viewpoints concerning public education, our viewpoints concerning our universities and colleges, and what we expect to happen there. The same also has translated into our churches, what we expected to happen there. And unfortunately, that which inculc- was inculcated in our universities in the 19, late 1960s and 1970s has invaded even our churches This is not just our educational institutions. This is our churches, not just the liberal churches, but the fundamentalist and evangelical churches. This is something worthy of our uh, discussion here today. Our special guest, uh, Dr. Stanley Wrigley, a.k.a. Stan, uh, with his book, Brutal Minds, which I want to make available to you. There's no way we're going to be able to touch everything in his book today, but at least we're going to be able to salt the oats and set the the stage for what you are about to experience when you get the book. It's uh, a hardbound book, hot off the press, $29, yours to help you to understand the depths of what we're dealing with here. And uh, we want to make it available there on our website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Now, I noticed uh, Dr. Stan that uh, not only have you been a professor, a full professor uh, at Drexel University, but you studied at Moscow State University. Now, was that Moscow, Idaho, or was that Moscow, Russia? (laughs) It was Lomonosov. Uh, Moscow State University in uh, Moscow, Russia. (laughs) And also in Paris. So you got the Paris version 
of uh, what's been going on as well in our broader culture. What did you learn at, uh, in Moscow? Well, I learned uh, in Moscow a lot of things that uh, probably wouldn't be politically palatable to say, given our current uh, you know, our current public discourse about what's going on <laughs> vis Russia and, and Ukraine. I have right. a lot of friends in, in Moscow. I, um, I um, had a wonderful opportunity. I was there for three months um, studying the summer of uh, a number of years ago. And I worked, I'm a business uh, professor. Uh-huh. Um, I mainly I deal in businesses. So I was dealing with a lot of Russian businesses and understanding, I, I really under, try to understand um, the Russian mindset um, uh, outside of the, what the tourists, tourists get to get to experience. I speak Russian, of course, and, and I was... Um, now, wait a minute, you uh, speak Russian? Yes, I was a Russian linguist in the in the military, in military intelligence back in the... Uh, Back in the old Cold War days, in the uh-huh. 1980s, yeah. Now, Vladimir so, Putin, by yeah. the way, just came out uh, and said that this thing that we're engaged in is a sacred war. He called it a sacred war because mm-hmm. the very existence of the Russian state and its historic purposes is at stake. How do you respond to that, by the way? I respond by saying that this is no surprise coming from Vladimir Putin. He spelled out exactly what it was going to do 23 years ago in what he calls the uh, what was called the Millennium Manifesto or the Millennium Declaration Declaration when he became prime minister uh, in his first his first stint as prime minister he, he's a big believer in what's called the Russian idea uh, the Russians have a very uh, messianic view of their own role in world affairs and he views they view that Moscow is the third Rome exactly the first Rome being of course Rome and then you've got London and then Whenever we in the West have, have uh, destroyed ourselves, the Russians will arise to scrape what they can from the ashes of our defeat. They believe in the Russian idea, which is autocracy, uh, a single hierarchical leader, orthodoxy, the Russian Orthodox Church, and, of course, nationhood, which right. means a kind of a super patriotism. So but what you did not know, uh, yep. Stan, is that I wrote a book about five years ago called mm-hmm. King of the Mountain. And in mm-hmm. that book, I have an entire long chapter uh, dealing with the Pope versus uh, Putin and huh. talk about the very long history going back to the 1500s with this mm-hmm. vision of the third Rome and there will never be another. This mm-hmm. underlays, underlies uh, the entire thinking within Russia that our politicians don't seem to have a grasp on. Well, yeah, the, the you know Russians have a keen uh, interest in their own destiny, and, and they go way back, and they see themselves destined to suffer uh, for the world's sins. Mm-hmm. And they have been suffering for a long time. They've been the victim of a number of invasions throughout history. And uh, t- today, Vladimir Putin, I think that uh, a lot of people tend to think of the, the communist model, the Soviet model, and I think that probably would be less correct than than correct. Looking at him as the modern embodiment of a czar, I think would be a far would be far more fruitful in in analyzing what he intends to do. I agree. He wants to, yeah, he, he wants to bring the, you know all the Russias. That's kind of a term they use. All the Russias back together, back to the to the central homeland in, yeah. in Kiev or Kiev is a, is a great. Uh, is a great part of that. Well, it was the foundation of Russia, yeah. <laughs> the spiritual yeah. foundation of Russia. And, uh, uh, you know, if if only our politicians and the State Department and so on could understand or were willing to understand, but I don't think they are, 
So you and I have had a, a fascinating little conversation, a mini conversation about this right here in the midst of our talking mm-hmm. about our universities. And uh, so I appreciate your diverging there. Uh, it brings a high relevance to what we're talking about here today. But you say in your in your book that this muscular ideological contender, the brute mind, came on the scene with stealth at the beginning of the century. Now, I gave a little history uh, of public education and how it uh, metastasized into the university system. But when you say this this latest brutal mind contender began at the beginning of this century, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's um, their influence began at the beginning of the century. What you described in your you know, very fine um, a story about public education, and you used the term, you, know, you went on this retreat where you had an encounter. Well, that, you were describing basically the brainwash developed by Kurt Lewin, a social psychologist at, at MIT in the 40s. He's known as the father of the encounter group. And the idea is you're going to unfreeze a belief system, change it, and then refreeze the new belief system. And when you were describing this, I was hearing what I was hearing was Kurt Lewin's um, brainwash method or thought reform message. He called it, uh, by the way, re-education. That's the term that has you know kind of cemented itself in our when we think about. Brainwash, Wait a minute! I thought about, that was Mayoist China that used that term. Well, Kurt Lewin's the one who uh, they do. Let me let me <laughs> relate that to you. He's the guy who coined re-education, and we, meaning not me, but we royally, use that term up to the 1990s when it became unsavory. The connotation became unsavory, and they right. changed it officially. Changed it to transformative education. The Chinese went through the very same cha- tra- transformation. They call it education for transformation. Um, and so you have a parallel. Uh, between Kurt Lewin's uh, notions of the encounter group and his notions of brainwashing and changing people's minds, uh, uh, along with, you know, Maoist China was very good at what they did uh, in terms of developing re-education camps, uh, transformative education uh, programs, and that sort of thing. So how did this thing come to be uh, salient at the beginning of the century? Right. Well, Education schools have been struggling against their bad reputation for many years on the college campuses. Mm -hmm. And they came up with a way that they could extend their influence, the influence of their the ideology that they've embraced, which is uh, ideology of neo-Marxism, critical theory, critical racialism, and um, critical, I was a crypto-Maoist, Paulo Freirean theory. And how can we extend our influence across the campus? Well, we're going to create new advanced degree programs in student affairs, higher education leadership, um, educational management, those types of things. We're going to graduate these people who will not be faculty members. No, they're going to come in the side door of the university for jobs that have been created just for them. And they're going to assume these positions in student affairs as student affairs directors and that sort of thing. And they're going to create a parallel curriculum. They call it the co-curriculum, and it is based explicitly on the curricular model that we in the academic affairs have been you know, exercising for, for many decades, if not centuries. They call this the co-curriculum in a kind of co-opting of the idea of teaching a curriculum. They run fake courses with their fake instructors, and some of them even offer a fake transcript. I know that Rutgers, St. John's University, they offer fake transcripts out of this co-curriculum. It's not taught by faculty. It's taught by folks with online master's degrees in education, that sort of thing, hmm. um, who have been ideologically trained 
um, in a lockstep ideology of social justice education, which is the name that they give to this crypto Maoist Paulo Freirean uh, neo Marxism. Now, you use this term Freirean. That's going to be very foreign to most of our listeners. What do you mean by that? Well, Paulo Freire is the closest thing to a patron saint in education schools. Who was he? Well, education schools faced a dilemma because you had a lot of Marxists, and I'll name them. You have Michael Apple and Henry Giroux, who are, who are again, in that pantheon of, uh, of saints in the education schools. They're, they're out-and-out out out Marxists. They say it. And so you can't say, hey, we're going to offer in our education schools a Marxist model of education. No one's going to buy that sort of thing. Very few people would. So we have to find a front man, just like a gangster has to find a front man to launder cash, dirty money. Right? <laughs> okay. We have so to they're find laundering a their uh, nefarious agenda. Yeah, they're dirty theory. I call it dirty theory. They're laundering the theory. You can't, you can't say, hey, we're neo-Marxists. But no, what we can say is that we offer a, um, a Frarian, Paulo Freire, a Frarian message of love. Now, he's a Brazilian, was a Brazilian, um, and he wrote a very famous book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That's, that's the third most cited book in all of uh, the social sciences. And it, it was basically, a, it wasn't, he wasn't an original thinker. It was basically a, a Maoist um, method of education called uh, teaching for liberation or teaching for emancipation, teaching for freedom. And is this is this school, what is called in religious circles liberation theology? Yes, it is. The foundation it is, it is. for it. Yeah, it's okay. very close to it. Yes, mm-hmm. that's where this comes from. Yeah, and um, and so, so for so Freirean ideology, which is crypto Maoist, I, I will tell you this uh, without any hesitation that Paulo Freire was a great admirer of, of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, and a great admirer of the Mao's Cultural Revolution. He, he said this, now he said this in 1974 in, a, in an article that a lot of people aren't aware of, they kind of bury it. He said that while Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, and Stalin uh, had tried to face the, the solution of convincing people, face the, the difficulty of, of, of convincing people of their ideology, uh, and Stalin responded by shooting down the peasants, the Mao Zedong has come up with what he called the most genial solution of the century, the Cultural Revolution, which you know as well as I do, killed about between one and two million people. Now, Mao killed a lot more people than one or two million. Right. But with respect to the Cultural Revolution, I'm trying to to distinguish his murderous policies and just, you know, hermetically seal them off from the, the Great Leap Forward where he killed, you know, uh, several other uh, million people. I think he's his... Well, up to 50 million, I think. Yes, yes. It's it's estimated between 50 and and 70 to 80 million of his own people through these these terrible policies, just misguided policies um, that resulted from a belief in his theory rather than the real world, the the empirical world of does this thing work or doesn't it. And and so, yeah, the Paulo Freire was a great admirer of the Cultural Revolution. He called it the most genial solution of the century. That will tell you, really... In a nutshell, what you must know about Paulo Freire, who is the uh, animator of this ideology that's being taught in education schools, that's being spread throughout the university through these student affairs higher education degrees, and which are reinforced by off-campus clubs or guilds or lobby groups that are associations of these people where they go for institutes to recharge their batteries, to learn about um, the latest developments in the Paulo Freirean ideology of liberation, and uh, then they come right back onto the campus. These off-campus clubs are important 
primarily because these clubs set the standards for these advanced programs in the education schools. So you see a circle of vice. It's a circular process where these off-campus clubs set the standards. They're, they're ideologically driven 100%. They set the standards for education schools who then graduate people who go into student affairs bureaucratic positions and who are then also members of these off-campus guilds. So you have this circular mechanism mm-hmm. um, that is uh, – this is why the ideology seems so lockstep uh, uh, in campuses across the country is just – as different as the University of Florida, Berkeley, Chicago, Duke, um, and, say, Texas. Uh They all seem the same because they're all being trained in the same way, and they're all drinking from the same same fountain, if you will. Well, uh, as I listened to you, it came to my attention that there's something even more insidious that's going on here, and I want to share that with you after this break. Friends, we're talking with uh, Stan Wrigley. There's so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archive. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint, friends. We're talking with Dr. Stanley uh, Wrigley, uh, Ridgely, rather, uh, Ph.D., uh, but he wants to be called Stan because the Ph.D. doesn't exactly uh, necessarily qualify you in one way or the other any more than my J.D. degree qualifies me to speak as an expert here concerning matters related to the interaction between what's happening in our world in general and what's happening within the greater body of Christ and so on. But his book, Brutal Minds, is a revelation of the depths of what is transpiring in our uh, universities and colleges. He calls it the dark world of left-wing brainwashing in our universities. It's a $30 book. It's yours for $29 on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Stan, here's what I have noticed here, and that is what is happening through what you call this Frarian doctrine coming out of that uh, fellow in Brazil, that has he's become the patron saint, you say, of American, uh, shall we say, this, this so-called invasion, the brutal minds that have taken over American public education, and uh, that is in our universities. Here's what they have done. They have appropriated... Contrary to all of their so-called objections to cultural appropriation, they have appropriated the words of Jesus and his apostles and co-opted them 
to present a false gospel. That's what they've really done here, using the word love in an inappropriate way, inconsistent with the Bible itself, and thereby convince many this must be the greatest thing since sliced bread, and our students are just lapping it up like puppy dogs. Well, you know, you make a very good point uh, about the misuse of the word love, which for these folks is simply a manipulative way to get people to drop their guard to be make them more accepting, uh, more accepting of exactly. the philosophy on 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 on, uh, on display. Exactly, and yeah, and the idea of we're going to love bond. That's the term that is that was developed by a cult, and the idea is to make you feel. You, let's just say you're the student. Make you feel more accepted than at any other time in your in your in your uh, in your life, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're surrounded by people who are doing this because they're all like, they're all doing it in a play. They're be performing. They're they're performing according to a script where everything you say, everything you do, is just so wonderful. This can be very intoxicating. For someone who is at, a, say, a crucial juncture in their life when they're moving into another stage out of high school into mm-hmm, college, mm-hmm. they're kind of uncertain, um, you're going to gravitate, just naturally, anyone's going to gravitate. Well, it's, it's the pursuit you. of a cause. They feel yeah. the need to pursue a cause, and that is, this is connecting them with some sort of what they perceive to be mm-hmm. a loving, legitimate cause. Yes. Yeah. And they do not understand how they are being totally manipulated in producing it. Uh, that's exactly right. And and you're saying, you know, Stan, well, you know, what evidence do you have that this process that you described from Kurt Lewin that um, that Chuck has you know, talked about how he was participating, what proof or evidence do you have that this is what's, what's going on? So, well, the proof and evidence is everywhere. All you have to do is be aware that this is what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. No one is ever going to sell Like Joseph Brodsky, who was a Soviet dissident who defected in the, to the United States in the 70s, he mm-hmm. gave a, he gave a uh, commencement address to Williams College in 84, and he said, you know what, in the battle between good and evil, evil is never going to announce itself when it comes over the threshold. And he says, <laughs> I am evil, I am evil, and I'm going to corrupt you. I'm going to corrupt you. Right. No, evil doesn't do that. It doesn't, no, they come, they come with smiles on their faces and uh, you know, songs in their hearts. Yeah, and uh, you have to know what to, to, to look for, and they may, they print out manuals on, on how to do this type of three stage brainwashing, and the first step is to put students at ease and to get them to quote this is a quote make yourself vulnerable so that you can then feel free to self disclose personal information, family information, and once you get doing that, then they begin the three stage process. Now the process that they use one of the process one of the brainwash manuals. And I should tell you the name of the manual. You can buy it yourself. It's called Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice Education. Um, it's in four editions, and I use the quote from the uh, first edition since the language becomes more and more guarded as they you know, come through successive editions. The, the substance doesn't change. The labels do. Now, the three stages of brainwashing are free, unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. They've changed that to defending, surrendering, and transforming. And if you wonder why students come home from that first Thanksgiving break and they seem so alienated, they're so angry, angry at you, the parents, mm-hmm. this is one reason why. Uh, in this first stage, they go, I'm going to quote, they, they undergo challenges to their belief system in an environment that is supportive and trustworthy. Once that trust is gained, then they're presented social justice theory, crypto Maoist, Paulo Freire, and ideology, and the process is, quote, 
for students, confusing, disorienting, frightening. Students feel out of control with no boundaries or familiar ground, may experience strong emotions such as anger, resentment, and a sense of betrayal by those who are supposed to tell them the truth about the social world, end quote. They're talking about parents right there. Mm-hmm. And finally, when they, wanna, when they want to cement, this is the next phase, the last phase, they want to cement uh, this new belief system so that there's no backsliding. They say this, quote, a new set of beliefs becomes home-based for interpreting experience and creating meaning. The past is reinterpreted and reconstructed into a new frame of reference. End quote. That's the brainwash right there, with no doubt about it. There's no disputing it. And and what they're doing is 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 laid out in their manuals. I have several of them. Actually, I have about 150 of their books. And the brainwash runs through this. Uh, now, of course, the word brainwash doesn't appear because that's kind of verboten. You're not going to use right. that term. You're going to use it's too transformative, obvious. Yes, transformative education. Just uh, as you mentioned earlier, just like the communist Chinese. Education for transformation. You're changing someone's fundamental belief system. And I don't believe that anyone is paying our colleges and universities money, good money, to do that. Um, certainly not, certainly by non-faculty who uh, have, you know, there's dime store degrees um, and are enlisting uh, and enlisting students into some sort of brainwashing program that they never, they never really uh, signed up for. But the faculties themselves are involved in it up to their eyeballs and uh, it also is a politically uh, driven ideology, uh, and this is the reason why it is one of the main tenets within the broader Democrat Party, not only yep. at the federal level, but in our states, to take mm-hmm. away the authority of parents and to shift that authority to our schools and our universities. They are, uh, th- there's a Latin term uh, that that is used uh, in loco parentis, in the place of the parent. And Mm -hmm. that began to be taught in the 1970s. And I do remember I was uh, uh, pursuing a master's in education. I I dropped out of that to pursue law. But in the course of that, that's where I learned this term, in loco parentis. And that all of this began back in the 1970s, and it has been launched out in the deep, across our country, it's insidious. You know, Carl Sandburg wrote a, a poem talking about the fog coming in on little cat feet. And that's yeah. how it's come in. It came on, on like the fog on little cat feet until we were completely enveloped in it. And now our students don't know anything other than what they have been indoctrinated in. Uh, I have to agree 100%. It's been an insidious, it's been a... A program, whenever you launch your program and you talk about love, you talk about acceptance, you talk about emancipation, um, you talk about, it's very similar to the liberation theology that you referred to earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever your vernacular is based in the entire, you know, the old discredited social justice rhetoric, which, which Lenin used, Stalin used, Mao used, Fidel Castro used, and now our own people, is, again, it's, it's like an institutionalized version of Einstein's theory of. Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, <laughs> yeah. and expecting different results. That's an apocryphal, but I'll say Einstein. <laughs> I, I, that's, good. that's a good pedigree right there, so I'll just claim that one for, for that definition. Um, it's, it's the same thing you see over and over again uh, throughout history, and you are exactly right when you mentioned Herbert Marcuse, who was the, uh, he was like another one of the uh, pantheon 
of the folks who are engaged in this type of thing. In mm-hmm. 1972, actually 1968, he was at the forefront of the, of the you know, worldwide unrest, primarily in, in Paris, the United States. And the three M's of, of, um, that guided the, the progressive movement were Marx, Mao, and Marcuse. Even those people today are, are probably not as familiar with him as they ought to be. Mm-hmm. He did popularized the term in 1972, the long march through the institutions. And this is something that has been ongoing for quite some time as the academics, the young people in graduate school back in the time, the rebels, the re- uh, rebels who were propounding this sort of idiot, Saul Alinsky and that type of person, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they, are now in the, they are now in the faculty. And uh, the second generation behind them is in the faculty as as well. Um, and they uh, there's a book called The Critical Turn in... in uh, education, and, and it refers to the critical turn in education and higher education, where it actually acknowledges, it's, it's a, not one of our books, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. it, it actually acknowledges the debt that they owe to the generation that came after Marcuse and basically populated the universities. Now, you said something a moment ago, I think, that the, the faculty are up to their eyeballs. Yes. I'm, I'm on the academic side of the house, academic affairs, not student affairs, but academic affairs. Mm-hmm. I have to say that the majority of faculty that teach and say are STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, uh, and math, are, prim- are kind of, I would say, oblivious to much of this. Well, yeah, be, okay, You're, let's, let's distinguish now between those that are involved in math and business and so on, as compared yeah. with those that are involved in general uh, university education, uh, liberal arts education, and so on. Radical yeah. difference yep. between the two of you. There, there certainly is. And if you want to know how, how deep that difference goes, I think that you can uh, you look at Samuel Abrams at Sarah Lawrence College, this recent study that appeared in the Washington Post, Inside Ed and everything. He, uh, others like that, he distinguished what the actual disparity is between liberals and conservatives. In the faculty, it's six to one, liberals to conservatives. Yeah. Well, we can deal with that. We've had to deal with that for so long. I mean, people kind of kind of knee-jerk expect H- that. Hang on to but your that's... comment there until after sure. this break, will you? I sure will. We're talking with Stan uh, Ridgely here, friends, Brutal Minds, his book, The Dark World of Left-Wing Brainwashing in Our Universities. Stay tuned. We've got much more to talk about. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Thought reform. Is that what's happening in your child's college or university? Indeed it is. And it's not about teaching them information 
reading, writing, arithmetic, and deepening that understanding and the application of those things. No, it's about completely reforming their thought process, which is largely utterly and totally anti-biblical. It's anti-biblical. It's a replacement theology. That's what it is. They're replacing the belief system that you thought you were raising your kids in to embrace something very different. And if you think that this is just happening in the secular universities, you are sadly mistaken. I was on the board of a very well-known evangelical Christian university for a number of years. And I saw it happening in the late 1970s, friends. It was happening right there, and I had to resist it. I had to resist it. And they didn't like it. But I had to resist it. I saw what was coming. And friends, this invasion is everywhere. And it's metastasized even into our churches. Please understand what we're saying here. When the Southern Baptist denomination, the largest in the United States denomination in the the uh, Protestant denomination, Protestant world, has divided over critical race theory, you know this has made its way into some of the most revered evangelical circles in our country. This is big. This is a big deal. We're not talking about theories out here. We're talking about reality. What is really happening is part of the major deception and seduction of our age. Our special guest today, uh, Dr. Stan Ridgely with his book, Brutal Minds. Uh, Stan, I had to cut you off there before the break. Do you have any idea what you were really talking about? Yes, I do. Um, I was talking about the disparity between liberals and conservatives uh, yeah. on the ratio on the campuses, and I talked about the what we see in the faculty, what what we see in the student affairs and the, bureau, the bureaucracies is twice as bad. It's 12 to 1. This is according to the research of Samuel Abrams. In other words, liberal over, over conservative. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, you think about that for a second. Ponder that for a second. What results that might, might yield if those people believe themselves to be, quote, college educators, just like the faculty, and they want to run a co-curriculum, which they are doing, mm-hmm. um, of, of fake courses um, and a fake curriculum, offering fake transcripts at times, um, trying, striving, if you will, to match or to um, provide an alternative to the curriculum itself by faculty members. And you know as well as I do, we have you know, math and science and history and, and sociology, all these things. Uh, we're all kind of in our silos. The student affairs bureaucrats that I'm talking about are all lockstep singular ideology, which is why you have this twelve to one, um, this twelve to one ratio. And I described earlier the mechanism whereby the uh, the uh, left wing or progressive radicals are pumped into the side door of the university into jobs that are created just for them. Mm-hmm. These are not people who are just going to make sure the pizza's hot and the sound system works. These are people who are engaged in quote boldly transforming the university. That's their motto. That's one of the mottos of the off-campus clubs. Boldly transforming higher education. That's it. Now, I don't know who it was who asked these non-faculty people to boldly transform anything. 
Um, they're not. They're not. Uh, I don't think they have the intellectual chops to do it. I don't think that, that they certainly are well organized. And this is one of the main um, enemies that we have to worry about on the college campus. That parents and students have to worry about on the college campus. Um, it's it's an awful it's an awful thing. Um, All right. Well. There's a there's an aspect to this that you talk yep. about in actually chapter one of your book called Thought Reform. Yeah. And it comes a, a quote from Robert J. Lifton. There is the demand that one confess to crimes one has not committed to sinfulness that is artificially induced in the name of a cure that is arbitrarily imposed. What I understand this to mean, and obviously you can you can understand from my comments and uh, the spots in the uh, breaks that this is a very strongly Christian-oriented program. But we don't deviate from the real issues of our time. And what I understand this to mean is this is creating, what you're talking about is actually creating a false religion with a false set of sins that must be confessed in order to attain a false or counterfeit salvation of acceptance that is driving this entire situation. How would you respond to that comment? I would say that you're spot on. It's a powerful quote, and I think you know why it's there. It certainly describes this um, this new religion that we have, or this secular religion of uh, fairy and critical consciousness and trying to bring people to a sense of salvation. And it, and it has all the elements that you just talked about, the idea that you must confess your sins, even if you haven't committed any sins, and that you have to dedicate your life to a, uh, to, to, I would say, you know, redeem yourself for committing these non-existent and sins. And that's the reason why every white man is a consummate sinner who cannot be redeemed because just implicit in his whiteness, he is unredeemable. That's about the that's about the whole of it, right there. Is this fact that critical race theory, um, and I'm very conversant in critical race theory. It, it, it one of its tenets is that um, basically you can identify the good and evil by virtue of the uh, virtue of skin color. And if you happen to be a, as they say, person of color who doesn't buy into this, well, then that just means that you have internalized the perspective of subservience, um, and that you need to be liberated from this. This is all Frarian. It's all modern critical race, critical race theory. The idea that there are faculty members, and you, you know, I, I've given the faculty somewhat of a pass, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, you have. There are a lot of, well, because that's because I haven't had an opportunity to point out some of the gadfly faculty who are, who are running this, because no, certainly the ones in the, what I call the soft side of campus, you know, sociology and gender studies and right. uh, some of the black studies uh, forms, uh, not all, but some, um, they are, are basically involved in the, the brainwash as as well. And the tendency of critical racialism, is, is it involves the idea that you can tell someone is evil or good by virtue of superficial characteristics. Now, Lisa Spannerman is a psychology professor in Arizona. Uh, she actually, I, mean, I use her as an example, she's just not, not the only example, but one of many, where she actually has written articles that you can generate, her being a psychologist, you can generate guilt in virtually any audience about most anything. Of course you can. Yes, by manipulating the sensory um, uh, stimulants to that person. And so she said we can stimulate guilt in white students 
she says, white students, about sins of the past that they were played no part in. And by doing this, we can then mobilize them to work for what she calls social justice. Um, mm-hmm. So here we have a, 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 I mean, it's like an admission that we're utilizing psychological manipulation, what we know in psychology that can generate guilt in anyone about anything, uh, to mobilize people for a particular um, social-slash-political uh, enterprise uh, that they might not really want to engage in. But now they feel obligated to because they feel guilty. You've been made, no. They've been made to feel guilty artificially by these psychological manipulation techniques. Again, her name is Lisa Spanierman, and her work is, they don't hide this sort of thing, but they, but, but then again, you know, the average person is not going to read the, the journal Counseling Psychologist. Right. So that's why we're doing this right here. We're trying to distill the heart of this issue. Exactly. Uh, the heart of the matter is the heart. And uh, if we understand the heart of it, that should help us to understand what we can do about it. Uh, now, as for me in my house, uh, I do not want to uh, place my children, my grandchildren. Now, I have 11 grandchildren. Uh, I don't want to place them in a milieu that is calculated to destroy them, that is Mm -hmm. calculated to completely manipulate them against all legitimate authority, against uh, the God that created them, and uh, to place them in this artificial world of uh, counterfeit sins. You talk about imprisoning people. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's um, it's a terrible thing. And again, I, I have to go back to my favorite example of the kids coming home to that Thanksgiving dinner, and they seem they're seeming so alienated and they're seeming so angry at the right. very people who have loved and supported them throughout their entire lives, literally throughout their entire lives. And, and parents were left wondering what what happened there, uh, why are they behaving this way, what have they experienced there, and what I try to have tried to explicate is what they indeed are experiencing, who's doing it, why they're doing it, and what we can do about it. Exactly. Okay. Now, one of the things that uh, a word that comes to my mind as we've been chatting here is this word microaggressions. Now, this is something of relatively new vintage, at least in my understanding, uh, maybe within the last five, six, seven years, microaggressions. What I would call those is artificial counterfeit minor sins that you must confess if you're going to belong to modern society as it's being defined for us. How do you, how would you look at those? Microaggressions. Microaggressions usually, usually utilized in the sense of racial microaggressions. Um, I I think it's a contrivance um, that um, you, you can't, you can't find overt racist incidents on the college campus because they simply, for the most part, don't exist. Mm-hmm. Campuses are the least racist places in America, according to Harvard professor Randall Kennedy. I read an article on it. Uh, so you have to come up with something that is going to create a climate that, well, we have a threat here. We have this type of mm-hmm. this type of racism on the campus, so we're going to come up with racial microaggressions. And this can be most anything that an individual sees. I will give you, give you a practical example. Um, because I've talked to the DEI people at my own university, and the example that they give is uh, that students who are uh, minority students um, are disturbed because certain people on the campus don't open the door for them or like they do for their friends. Um, that's it. 
that's a microaggression. They report mm. that mm-hmm. to, to the system. So I think microaggressions is a you know, fake sins. You mentioned this. It's basically people being rude to each other um, for, for various reasons. And, and I'm not a fan of rude people, but the no. fact is that's part of life. And so to identify uh, rudeness, whether it exists or not, whether it's in the mind or, uh, of, the, uh, of, of, say, a paranoiac that people are looking at me funny, uh, uh, people are listening, they're talking about me, which is basically uh, the idea of a microaggression. I think it comes out of paranoia, paranoid personality disorder, and you're teaching people <laughs> how, to evince, how, how to evince paranoia. Are those people talking about me? What did you mean by that? You said something. What did you mean by that? Kind of a hyper-suspicion. And... Um, it's uh, unfortunate that people are being trained to, to behave as if they were, uh, you know, paranoiacs. That, that's unfortunate. All right. uh, but that, I think, is the source of the, uh, the microaggression. There's the imagined sins. Um, uh, goes back to the quote that you, that you uh, read uh, from Robert J. Liston about imaginary sins. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you list eight criteria uh, that are characteristic of all uh, supposedly brainwashed-type programs uh, transformation programs of this type and uh, milieu control, mystical manipulation, demand for purity, cult of confession, sacred science, loading the language, doctrine over person, and dispensing of existence. We don't we don't have time to go into those in detail. We've talked about them parenthetically here as we've gone on. But where is the hope? Uh, that that's the question that I want to. Uh, uh, see if we can resolve in any way, because this is dug so deeply. I'm wondering. Right. I'm wondering: is there really any hope? I'm hearing the the closing music come up behind us here. Do you really see Stanley any hope for change in this regard? I do. I see the hope. The source of our hope is in our is our, in our students themselves. They're made aware of, of how they're going to be attacked. They may, they're made aware to maintain their guard, their critical faculties, their sense of skepticism, and their moral grounding. Mm. They receive from their parents. I think that they are, will be sufficiently armed to there you go. Uh, to meet and if not, you know, emasculate the folks who are trying to bring. There you go. Brutal Minds, friends. That's the name of the book. A hardbound book, hot off the press. Twenty nine dollars. On our website, saveus.org. Call us 1 800 Save USA. Become a partner, friends. Send your gifts by faith to Save America Ministries. You can see the problems. We're trying to do what we can about it. 28 years on the air now. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home. 